0: Uh, In 1773, at the age of 23, uh, he heard the gospel preached. And through that message, uh, the Spirit showed Lyle that good works cannot save anyone. It would be another five or six months before the scales finally fell from his eyes. And I want to share with you uh, how the Spirit came to help Lyle see a conviction of sin in in his own life. So Lyle writes about his conversion, The more I heard or read, the more I saw that I was condemned as a sinner before God, till at length I was brought to perceive that my life hung by a slender thread. And if it was the will of God to cut me off at that time, I was sure I would be found in hell as sure as God was in heaven. I saw my condemnation in my own heart and I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And having been born again, Lyle felt a love and a joy that he had never before experienced. He professed his newfound faith publicly. He received baptism. He joined the church And like most new converts, Lyle did not keep the faith to himself. He evangelized, he discipled, he led non-Christians and young believers through hymns, the way you and I might lead someone through a solid Christian book. And eventually, the church began to wonder if Lyle had the gift of teaching, and so the pastor tested him by scheduling Lyle to preach once a quarter. And so soon the church had seen enough, and the members set him apart for pastoral ministry. Soon Lyle moved to Savannah, and for three years he evangelized and discipled and preached there, and bringing Christians together that they might form churches. Now, however, at this point, God turned this itinerant preacher into a missionary. He booked a ship to Jamaica, found a job working for the governor of Jamaica, Uh, eventually made a living in agriculture and transportation, but he never took his eye off the goal to see the gospel planted throughout the island of Jamaica. So he supported himself and his wife and his four children, all the while preaching the gospel as much as he could. And in many ways, his life in Jamaica was like his life in Georgia. Now, soon, Lyle had enough Christians to constitute a church in Kingston. He served as the founding pastor. But his shepherding did not end with the church that he planted in Kingston. No, his itinerant evangelistic work continued, and through his travel and his teaching and preaching, Lyle saw hundreds and hundreds of converts. And less than a decade after arriving, Lyle reported 1,500 believers scattered across the island of Jamaica. Anglicans and Methodists had been on the island for years, but none had seen the fruit borne by this Baptist preacher. Now, how did this happen? What was his secret? Lyle once described his ministry in these very simple, ordinary terms. He wrote, I preach, baptize, administer the Lord's Supper, and travel from one place to another to publish the gospel and to settle church affairs. So he sounds to me a little bit like Luther, who refused to take any credit for the Reformation, but simply told his friend, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Still, we might be a little skeptical about Lyle's great success. Did he somehow get these results by watering down the gospel? Did he adopt some kind of easy believism on the island? Well, far from it, Lyle was what we would call reformed in his soteriology and ecclesiology. He took theology and church membership very seriously. He believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And every month when his Jamaican congregation celebrated the Lord's Supper, they read aloud their church covenant, renewing the promises that they'd made to God and to one another when they first joined the church. And so standing on the Bible... Lyle expected the members of the church he pastored to live a holy life, however imperfectly, that matched their profession of faith. And not only did Lyle preach and pastor, but he devoted his life to the very ordinary but good work of raising up leaders. He sought to obey 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Lyle took that verse to heart, and he looked for young men with the gift of teaching, and these men were often the fruit of his own preaching ministry. So let me take a brief aside, if you don't mind, from looking exclusively at George Lyle and talk to you for just a moment about one of Lyle's uh, converts and disciples, a man by the name of David George, all right? The, the spirit had been working on George's heart, David George, preparing him to hear the preaching of George Lyle. Listen to David George describe what happened and how God used Lyle to change him. I felt myself at the disposal of sovereign mercy. At last in prayer to God, I began to think that he would deliver me, but I did not know how. Soon after, I saw that I could not be saved by any of my own doings but that it must be by God's mercy that my sins had crucified Christ and now the Lord took away my distress. I was sure that the Lord took it away because I had such pleasure and joy in my soul that no man could give me. Soon after I heard Brother George Lyle preach on, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. When it was ended, I went to him and told him I was so, that I was weary and heavy laden and that the grace of God had given me rest. Indeed, his whole discourse seemed for me, right? That's David George speaking about the preaching ministry of George Lyle in his life, and that testimony really resonates with me because I remember when I first went to church when I was a teenager, and I heard preaching, simple preaching, and I, I, I really thought that the pastor was speaking directly to me. Now, candidly, I thought that they taught him how to do that in seminary. I thought this can't be real. You know, this must be some, like, gimmick where I genuinely feel that I was being preached to, but now I know it was the Holy Spirit you know, using those very simple, those very simple words to, to bring me eventually to saving faith. In any event, Lyle began the ordinary work of discipling George. He encouraged him to be, to, uh, to be bold and to pray for and with his friends, and, and David George did just that, and David George did more than just that Soon he began to teach. And David George must have taught very well because eventually the church that he was a part of made George an elder. And in God's providence, he soon became the pastor of a small church in Silver Bluff, South Carolina, not far from Augusta. Now, God had more in store for David George. Much like Lyle took the gospel to Jamaica, George saw Canada as his mission field, and he made the long journey north and preached all over Nova Scotia, in the cities of Halifax, Fredericton, and he even sailed to Newfoundland to preach in the city of St. John's. And God used George, David George, to plant churches wherever he went, and David George's reputation grew, but he didn't stay in Canada. The call to make disciples of the nations rested heavy on his heart, and so he led a team to Sierra Leone in West Africa. And his gospel ministry prospered, and God planted a church there too. Now, I could tell you other stories of men that George Lyell influenced. Uh, his story is really pastoral ministry 101. We preach, we pray, we pour into people, and we're never quite sure what God is going to do with all of our labors. We resonate with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3.6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And sadly, we don't often get to see the growth in the individuals whose lives we are pouring into. And George Lyle had that kind of ministry. For years, he probably had no idea just how fruitful David George was being. It's not as if he could reach out to him on WhatsApp. But Lyle didn't have time to worry about George. He had his own ordinary work to do uh, in the field that God had planted him, in this case, the field of, of Jamaica. Now, so far, I've described just in, in really, a, uh, obviously, a fruitful ministry, right? I mean, no doubt about that. But it's an ordinary ministry. Lyle was a, a pastor who poured out his life for others, much the way I trust that, that, that you are all all doing. Now, however, if you've been paying any attention, and I know it's Monday morning, but if you've been paying any attention, you probably noticed that George Lyle's ordinary ministry took place during extraordinary times. In 1774, not long after God saved George Lyle, America's first Baptist association met in Philadelphia. In mid-October, these Baptists called for a time of prayer and fasting in light of what they referred to as the public calamity. What calamity what they were, were they referring to? Well, a revolution was knocking on America's door. And while these Baptists met under a church steeple to pray just a few blocks away, the First Continental Congress gathered Patrick Henry, John Hancock, Sam Adams, and George Washington, and they vigorously debated which actions, if any, to take against the British who had been tightening their grip on the colonists. Now, in other words, God saved George Lyle in Georgia on the eve of the Revolutionary War, and this was a tricky time for Baptists who often found themselves on the wrong side of the law. For example, in 1770, authorities in the town of Ashfield, Massachusetts, confiscated hundreds of acres of property owned by Baptists when the owner's refused to pay for the support of the local state church, congregational church. Should the day come when American churches are called to sacrifice for our biblical principles, at least we can say that we aren't alone. Christians in most eras have had to swim upstream against the culture. So These Baptists had their land confiscated because they weren't going with the the national program. In any event, when the the state was about to bring down the hammer on these Baptists in Massachusetts for refusing to support the state church, guess who came to their aid? King George III of England. You may know him from the Broadway hit Hamilton. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. That's the guy. Da-da-da-da-da. So, long story short, not every Baptist believed the American patriots would be the best defenders of religious liberty. Many Baptists sided with the British. Nonetheless, as time went on, and with the influence of men like Isaac Bacchus in the North and Richard Furman in the South, Baptists typically sided with the patriots. Now, I say typically because every local community had its own opinions. Baptists in Georgia were very divided. Henry Sharp, for example, was a Baptist deacon in the Augusta area. And in 1776, when war broke out, the British commissioned Sharp, right, the Baptist deacon, they commissioned, the British commissioned him to be an officer. And Sharp fought faithfully for the king of England, losing first his hand, in war, and then eventually his life. So Baptists fought Baptists in the Revolutionary War. Now, what does this have to do with George Lyle? Well, deacon Henry Sharp, right, the deacon who had been commissioned by the British to be an officer who lost his hand and eventually lost his life, deacon Henry Sharp had been a church member and friend of George Lyle. And not surprisingly, Lyle also sided with the British and became close to a British Colonel, Moses Kirkland, the British officer charged with managing the British evacuation of Savannah. Now, Lyle did not fight in the war himself, but he did his best to preach the gospel and serve churches while the war for independence was raging all around him. So, Suffice it to say, yes, George Lyle had a had a fairly ordinary ministry, but he worked under extraordinary circumstances in very unusual times. He ministered in a day and age when fellow believers who lined up theologically in exactly the same place had radically different views about politics. Does any of this sound familiar? This past year, more than any year of my ministry, I have seen brothers and sisters with like minded faith expressing serious and deep political disagreements. And if your church is anything like mine, you've had to wrestle with recommendations from the CDC, decrees from the governor, statements from the president, questions of when and how to open your church. You've had to do this while members of your own congregation, leaders in your own congregation, sharply disagree over when to reopen what to do with mask mandates, and whether taking the vaccine is an act of prudence or satanic. And in the midst of this trying year, I've taken great comfort in the Bible and the patience and grace shown by the members and the elders of the church that I serve, but I'm not ashamed to say I've taken some comfort from history. Back in the 1770s, genuine Christians believed it was wrong to take up arms against the British Empire. God had, after all, placed George on the throne. Meanwhile, genuine Christians on the other side believed that King George III had forced the patriots into a just war. History is history. It's all in the past. My point is that until Jesus comes back, we are in the last days, and the more things change, the more they stay the same. George Lyle was like us, an ordinary pastor forced to navigate extraordinary circumstances. All right, now, many of you knew this already, but for those of you who didn't, it is time to spill the beans. George Lyle was born a slave. In fact, he wasn't born George Lyle. He had no last name, or if he did, he didn't know what it was. His father's first name was Lyle. His mother's name was Nancy. Uh, George Lyle's first last name was Sharp. That was the name of his master, Henry Sharp. Yes, according to the laws of Georgia, Deacon Sharp owned George. And only after being freed by Sharp did George take his father's first name as his last name, and thus we know him today as George Lyle. I mentioned Lyle was born in Virginia before moving to Georgia as a boy. He did not move with his parents. Enslavers separated him from his parents. This was not uncommon, and it presented a real challenge for Christians who had reached the conclusion that God ordained slavery because they also believed God ordained the family, and they didn't know how to recognize the reconcile the ordination of slavery with the ordination of the family. So many Baptists and and other Christians in this era questioned the morality of separating families. Some, in fact, refused to do it. Some didn't refuse to do it. And in any event, someone separated George from his mom and dad. And this is how he found himself in Georgia, in Burke County, Georgia, home to Waynesboro, and Hephzibah, Augusta. Lyle attended a church pastored by Matthew Moore, and Lyle probably went because of Henry Sharp, again, who served as a deacon in Moore's church. And God used Moore's preaching to save Lyle. I mentioned how Lyle worked through hymns with people. He did this with other slaves, slaves who couldn't read that they could sing. Lyle could read, and he found hymns to be the best way to share the gospel, and those who couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And his ministry caught the attention of his pastor, Matthew Moore, and deacon Henry Sharp, and their church, Big Buckhead Creek Church, soon licensed George to preach. And for the next three years, Lyle preached on plantations, usually on Sunday evenings. And his work proved to be so fruitful that Henry Sharp granted Lyle his freedom so that Lyle could be exclusively devoted to itinerant preaching. And do you remember David George? David George. David George was a slave on the plantation in Silver Bluff, South Carolina, not far from Augusta, The church on that plantation, Silver Bluff, is the first black Baptist church in America, though it was organized by a white preacher, a man by the name of Waite Palmer. David George, saved under Lyle's preaching, became the first pastor of that church and the first black Baptist pastor in America. And because of the Revolutionary War, the church in Silver Bluff had to fold. And this is probably because the owner of the plantation was a patriot who had to flee when the British took control of the region. And this is when Lyle moved to Savannah where he continued to preach. And God used his preaching to help organize the first black Baptist church in Savannah. And how that happened is a story briefly worth telling. Not long after Sharp freed Lyle, the deacon soldier died in the war. And upon his death, some in Sharp's family, maybe even his own sons, tried to re-enslave Lyle. They accused him of running away. And they had him thrown in prison. Well, with the help of a British officer by the name of Moses Kirkland, Lyle Managed to produce papers documenting that his now deceased former master Henry Sharp did in fact legally free him. These papers proved his emancipation was legal. Freed now a second time, Lyle was the leading black Baptist in Savannah. However, he had to leave the city. I'm not why, perhaps to get away from the men who claimed him as their property, even though Henry Sharp had freed him. His departure to Jamaica had something to do with an agreement he made with Colonel Moses Kirkland. Lyle said he was, and now I'm quoting Lyle, partly obliged to come to Jamaica as an indentured servant. An indentured servant to Kirkland, Lyle owed Kirkland a lot of money, perhaps the money required to take his large family out of Savannah. However, before he left, Lyle preached on Tybee Island, preaching on the words, You must be born again, from John 3, 7. Lyle led to the Lord a young man by the name of Andrew Bryan, on Tybee Island. And after Lyle left for Jamaica, Bryan gathered other Baptists together, mainly slaves, and on January 19, 1788, they formed the first African Baptist Church, a church that exists today in Savannah. Eve Brooks Holyfield, who is an excellent historian who taught at Emory University, described first African Baptist in Savannah, as, and now I'm quoting Holyfield, a center for Calvinist teaching. This is no longer the case. After Lyle landed in Jamaica, he immediately went to work preaching to anyone who would listen, especially to the slaves. And in about a six-year period, he saw 450 conversions, baptized 400 himself, oversaw a church that grew to about 350 members, mainly slaves and blacks, but there were whites too. Apparently, he won over a few Methodists. In 1790, Lyle wrote, a few of Mr. Wesley's people, after immersion, join us and continue with us. Across the island, in less than a decade, as I said before, God added about 1,500 souls to the Baptist church in Jamaica. Now, we know very little about Lyle's ministry between 1790 and his death in 1828. Jamaica underwent much change, though. False teaching infiltrated Baptist churches throughout Jamaica. Not all of them, but many of them. And a few years after Lyle died in 1831, the slaves of Jamaica revolted. And it's called the Baptist War. And it started as a nonviolent protest that eventually became bloody. And this protest led England to free the Jamaican slaves in 1838, 10 years after Lyle's death. And these protesters, for the most part, did not share Lyle's theology, but they knew that a man should not be in chains to another man. And even if Lyle never preached directly on emancipation, his Bible teaching laid the axe to the root of slavery. And as the founder of the Baptist movement in Jamaica, George Lyle is still credited in Jamaica with bringing both spiritual and political freedom to the people of the land. Now, if I stopped right there, I think we would all be edified by... This uh, biographical history, it's an interesting story, and it's, I think it's an inspirational one. To the best of our knowledge, George Lyle is the first ordained black Baptist minister in America. Again, we think that the credit of being the first black Baptist pastor goes to his disciple, David George, but he was uh, the first ordained black Baptist minister in America. He is instrumental in founding the first black Baptist church in Silver Bluff, where David George pastored in South Carolina, and uh, the oldest black Baptist church still in operation, though now theologically liberal, was founded in part by the work of of George Lyle, first African Baptist in Savannah. It's unusual if you go to Savannah, and you go to the the, the downtown market area, um, you'll see the church, and there's actually um, an engraving of, of his face And he's credited as the first pastor of of this church. And to the best of my knowledge, he's actually not the first pastor. But without him, there would be no first African Baptist. And so I think just history and maybe the church has kind of credited him as being really their, their founder. And though he didn't leave the way most missionaries leave, we can still call him the first Baptist missionary preceding William Carey by a decade. A number of years ago, one of the elders of the church I serve, who is a Jamaican-American, referenced Lyle in a Sunday evening devotional. And this piqued my interest, and I realized that though I had earned a PhD in church history, my knowledge of the black church in America was rather thin. And in recent years, I've learned of men like Jupiter Hammond, a contemporary of Lyle. Hammond lived his entire life as a slave on Long Island in New York, Hammond was an amazing preacher and writer and poet, and he urged fellow slaves to trust in the Lord, even as they had to endure the evil of bondage. He had a high view of God's sovereignty. Many more are aware of Lemuel Haynes, a Congregationalist pastor in New England, and also a contemporary of Lyle. So my point is that there are many godly African-American leaders of this era worth pastors today getting to know. Whenever we study history, we need to avoid what we call hagiography, making a saint out of the people that we're studying. Uh, George Lyell was just a man, and he did some things that are hard to understand. For example, Lyle owned slaves in Jamaica. Was this because they had nowhere else to turn? Was it because he thought slavery was acceptable? My best guess is that in a fallen world, he did what he thought was best to serve his neighbors, neighbors who had known nothing but bondage. And in his will, Lyle decreed his slaves should be freed when he died. Apparently, his wife didn't agree, and she found a way to keep them bound. So history is messy, and it's complicated, and I'm not here to clean it up. I had originally entitled this talk, George Lyle and a Heart for the Nations. I expected to focus nearly entirely on Lyle as a missionary. When I had heard that name, that's sort of what I, what, I, what I connected it to, this missionary. However, the more I studied, the more I realized elevating him as a missionary is a little strange, since he didn't really choose to go to Jamaica. Circumstances expelled him from America. And I suppose Lyle was a missionary, much the way our... Biblical man, Daniel, was a missionary. Daniel served the king, Lyle served the governor. But nothing could keep Lyle from gospel ministry. He kept his hand to the plow, he got up, did the work of the ministry week after week after week, year after year, and God chose to bless that work. And my guess is this is how you view your ministry, keeping your hand to the plow, your nose to the grindstone, uh, preaching and teaching and praying and trusting God to give the growth. So with all that in mind, I do want to end with three observations from Lyle's ordinary ministry, and I pray these are an encouragement to you as I wrap up this talk. First, sound doctrine is a non-negotiable. Sound doctrine is a non-negotiable. Lyle was an heir of the first great awakening. You can almost hear Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God when Lyle explains how he came to saving faith. He knew he'd be damned, he knew that he would be damned forever. I perceive, he wrote, that my life hung by a slender thread, and if it was the will of God to cut me off at that time, I was sure I should be found in hell. But right? Lyle knew what God had saved him from, and he wasn't ashamed to talk about it. When John Ripon, a leading Baptist in England, asked Lyle in writing, in a a letter, in correspondence, asked Lyle what he believed. Lyle replied, I agree to election, redemption, the fall of Adam, regeneration, and perseverance, knowing the promises to all who endure in grace, faith, and good works, to the end shall be saved. Today we call this big God theology. We worship a God who, Ephesians 1, 4, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should believe in him. We worship a God who will not lose one of his own because, Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Lyle respected Paul's exhortation in 1 Timothy 4.16, the call to watch closely our life and our doctrine. Lyle charged his own congregation to model a holiness He wrote a church covenant that every church member had to affirm. Listen to Article 19. Uh, I think my church covenant, my church, is a little bit too long. Lyles' was a lot longer. Here's Article 19. We hold, if a brother or sister should transgress any of these articles written in this covenant so as to become a swearer, a fornicator, or adulterer, a covetous person, an idolater, a railer, a drunkard, an extortioner or whoremonger or should commit any abominable sin and do not give satisfaction to the church according to the word of God, he or she shall be put away from among us not to keep company nor to eat with him. Lyle did not shy away from sound doctrine. Whether talking about election or church membership, he took it all very seriously. His life in ministry reminds me that a good portion of the pastor's job is simply teaching the Bible, what the Bible says, and then holding people by the grace of God accountable to live it out. Sound doctrine is a non-negotiable. It's the heartbeat of an ordinary ministry. Second observation from his ministry. Suffering in the name of Christ is a badge of honor. Suffering in the name of Christ is a badge of honor. We should not look for suffering, but if it comes our way, we can be grateful to God for it Remember what the apostles did after they were persecuted in Acts chapter 5, verse 41? Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, right? Lyle started out a slave only to be re-imprisoned in Savannah after his former master died. And with Colonel Kirkland's help, Lyle got out of that scrape, but the situation in Jamaica had its own trials. Ministry on the island was hard. It wasn't like out on the beach with daiquiris. It was hard. The slaves had no money to support a ministry, so Lyle served bivocationally. He provided well for his family, but you can only imagine how tired he must have been holding down all of these jobs. Slaves attended his church at the risk of punishment and even death. The Jamaican authorities imprisoned Lyle at least twice for preaching messages that they thought might lead the people to rebel. Lyle saw many conversions, but many slaves refused to listen to him for fear of being hurt by their masters. Lyle walked a tightrope. He demanded that his church members get permission from their owners before they could join his church. I don't think he wanted to do that. I don't think he thought that was biblical, that an image bearer, a child of God, would need to get permission from his owner before joining the church. I don't think Lyle thought that was biblical. He was walking a tightrope. Right? He felt he had to make this horrible bargain in a corrupt and fallen world. Like for Lyle, shepherding the flock meant doing all he could to keep the flock alive. And even if that meant suffering the indignity of ringing a church bell before and after every service so their owners would know when to expect them to come and when to expect them home. In 1 Peter 5, 9, we're told to resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We like to say ministry is hard, but I dare say it is not harder for us than it was for Lyle, or for the faithful members of the Jamaican flock. Sometimes we suffer because of our own foolish decisions, but sometimes we suffer, like Lyle, simply because we kept our hand to the plow. Suffering in the name of Christ is a badge of honor. All right, last observation Planting gospel seeds is encouraging. Planting gospel seeds is encouraging. A few years ago, Stephen Nichols, speaking to a group of pastors, borrowed a line from Wendell Berry uh, who said, plant sequoias, plant a little seed that is going to grow up into a gigantic sequoia tree. And that's what George Lyle did. He did the ordinary work of preaching the gospel, discipling believers, reaching the lost, and over the years, even though he did not have WhatsApp or Zoom or any such thing, he, he, he fought hard to stay in touch with, with his disciples. He prayed for them, and God did let him see some of the fruit of his ministry. He witnessed God afoot throughout the world in the work of men in whom he'd invested. So I want to share with you one of his reports. This is this is Lyle in Jamaica reporting on what he knows of the work of brothers in his network. And even as I, as I read this report, you might be thinking about your brotherhood in, I love saying Chicagoland. You might be thinking about your, can I say Atlanta land? I know that doesn't that, that work the same way. But as I share this report, think about your, your brothers in Chicagoland and even maybe in, in networks that you might be a part of around the country or even around the world. All right, so listen to Lyle. Brother Andrew Bryan, a black minister at Savannah, has 200 members in full fellowship and has certificates from their owners of 100 more who had given in their experiences and were ready to be baptized. Also, I received accounts from Nova Scotia of a black Baptist preacher, Brother George, who was a member of the church in Savannah. He had the permission of the governor to preach in three provinces. His members in full communion were then 60, white and black, the gospel spreading. Brother Amos at Providence, he writes me, that the gospel has taken good effect and is spreading greatly. He has about 300 members. Brother Jeffrey Golfing, another black minister, preaches near Augusta in South Carolina at a place where I used to preach. He was a member of the church at Savannah and has 60 members, and a great work is going on there. Now you can quibble a little bit with whether or not George Lyle should have been so concerned about the numbers. But he truly rejoiced in the spread of the gospel, not just in Jamaica, but his backyard, but all around the world. God used him to build a network, a network of of churches. Now, my prayer for me and for you is that God would give us a renewed heart for ministry, not just in our own fields, but in neighboring fields and in faraway fields. I'd like to see more pastors at the local level loving one another better in the years ahead, better knowing the work taking place in their cities and in the neighborhoods. Much of what I've heard is going on right here in your city. And I pray that like Lyle, we would plant gospel seeds and recognize that we may never, at least in our lifetime, see those seeds sprout and grow. Well, I end with this. On May 23rd, 1802, the first African Baptist Church in Savannah, again, a center for Calvinist teaching, was going strong. Lyle's Lyle's convert, Pastor Andrew Bryan, led the church to ordain a young man, a man by the name of Henry Francis. And I suppose that we can think of Francis as Lyle's spiritual grandson. Francis had been freed from slavery, and I suspect that, that Bryan planned the ordination service He ended the service with a Scottish hymn, and he wanted that young pastor to have his heart set on gospel ministry. And my guess is that if you are in ministry, it is because of the theme of this song, and it's called Go Preach the Gospel. I'm not gonna sing it, but I'm gonna end by reading you these stanzas. Thus says the Lord, the Savior dear, unto his servants whom he sends, go preach the gospel far and near unto the world's remotest ends. I mean, just picture Henry Francis is hearing this song sung on the day he, just being freed from slavery, is being ordained a pastor. Go forth, ye heralds, in my name. Sweetly the gospel trumpets sound. The glorious jubilee proclaim where'er the human race is found. Convince a world of sinners blind and show them where their danger lies. The broken-hearted, careful bind and wipe the tears from weeping eyes. Be wise as serpents where you go, yet harmless as the peaceful dove and let your whole deportment show that you're commissioned from above. And as you freely have received, e'en so to others freely give, so shall your message be believed and many dying, Sinners live. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good work you've done building your church throughout the nations. We gather together today in countryside Illinois recognizing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God and recognizing that you have called us to a good work of making your name known. We are not the first, and Father, unless Jesus Christ comes in the next few minutes, we won't be the last We do pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly, but until that day comes, would you make us faithful, uh, doctrine-loving, church-loving, kind, big-hearted, network-building pastors, Christians, children of God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.